The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the natural environments that archaeologists are drawn to because in large measure people were drawn to them in the past is swamplands and places that are attractive natural zones or ecological zones not just to animals and plants but ultimately because of those attractions to humans and the history of human clustering around swamps and bodies of water, as many of you know, if you've been following some of the threads that we've developed on the program, are swamps. And swamps have, again, as I had indicated, an intrinsic attraction because of of, uh, natural resources and foodstuffs and subsistence sources that people are drawn to. Um, Along the East Coast, the coastal plain, which runs in North America uh, from Canada way down into Florida, the coastal plain has been dotted with a series of extensive semi-continuous, continuous, and through time uh, separated swamp bodies because of their low position and their situation at the edge of the coast where, uh, as many of you know, who have been following issues of uh, global climate change and warm global warming, as sea levels rise, the configuration of water bodies along the edges of the coast change and they change in very very significant as well as subtle ways and humans have settled there for very long periods of time uh my guest today is dr dan sayers who is an associate professor of anthropology at american university in washington dc and uh dan is a historical archaeology who works in the Great Dismal Swamp, which is one of the few uh, surviving natural refugia 
in the United States. It's an enormous landscape, and he will talk about it directly, but it occupies a, a, an extensive tract between uh, southern Virginia and northern North Carolina. And Dan, and we just discussed it, it, it be, uh, before we went on the air, Dan has been working at the Great Dismal Swamp for uh, 13 years, which is something that is very unusual, that kind of duration for a single project in uh, not just North America, but any anywhere in the world to engage in the excavation and research of a single uh, site. And of course, there are several sites located in this landscape, clearly, but in a single location for that many years. And, and uh, it is my pleasure to introduce to you historical archaeologist, Dr. Dan Sayers. Dan, uh, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. So let's start at the beginning, Dan. What brought you and what intrigued you about um, the Great Dismal Swamp? When I looked at your uh, CV and I look at your background, I see that you got your Ph.D. at the College of William and Mary, and I'm guessing mm -hmm. there was sort of a geographic proximity to the Great Dismal Swamp that woke your interest there, or am I, is that not true? Well, it was, it was handy. Uh, it, it certainly relates. The... Um, you know, I, I arrived uh, for the doctoral program in the fall of 2001, and uh, I want to say within the first month, uh, one of the historical archaeologists on faculty who I was taking a class with, uh, he had been reading over a thesis uh, by another student that was focused on one part of the history of the Great Dismal Swamp. And so he mentioned to me in one of our discussions, uh, uh, this is Dr. Marley Brown over there, uh, he mentioned to me that, you know, Maroons in particular, apparently, as he would have put it then, uh, uh, lived in the swamp in great numbers. And, of course, I hadn't really heard particularly of the Great Dismal Swamp, or at least couldn't remember it instantly. But uh, I've always been interested in, uh, be it the Underground Railroad or Maroons or this kind of uh, large-scale resistance history uh, in, in the history of uh, enslavement. So it, it just totally hit me as something that sounded really, really cool. So uh, even that first semester, I started looking into what's been done, uh, some of the history, some of the background kind of work, uh, and quickly came to realize that there was pretty decent chance, right, that doing some archaeological work uh, in the current uh, or extant swamp, you know, might prove fruitful. Um, so from that that first couple of years, I was basically doing the sort of necessary historical research to to uh, sort of set, pave the way to, to go out in the field. Um, so it's it's basically my first uh, sort of foot, uh, sort of intellectual interest was for this maroon history that is associated there. But with that background research, it became very clear that the, the history of this, the social history of the swamp, is certainly much more complicated and, uh, and rich uh, than just one group of people uh, going in. And living and so on. So uh, the, the complex view of that history required quite a bit of model development before I went in the swamp to do work and so on. Um, that background research also showed that ultimately very little archaeological work had been done in the current swamp. Uh, there had been a pioneering uh, MA thesis written uh, in 1988 by then student uh, Elaine Nichols, uh, University of South Carolina. She had worked on a potential maroon site in former swampland. It was now farmland. Um, and so it was it was a good thesis uh, one way or another. But, uh, yeah, as far as working in the current swamp, uh, yeah, nothing really had been done to speak of. Uh, so I had a lot of 
you know, gaps in my knowledge about what was out there archaeologically. Um, so, yeah, I had to, had to develop models based on all that kind of background research I did before I even went in, sort of predicting what artifacts might be associated with uh, swamp communities, what kinds of communities, if any, uh, were out there, this kind of thing, even the landscapes, what kind of buildings did they construct and so on. So kind of basic archaeology stuff, but it had to be done in particular for this this potential project. Um so, but yeah, by fall of 2003, I, was, I felt ready. Uh, by that time, I had contacted the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who owns or stewards the Great Dismal Swamp National Wildlife Refuge, and that's the largest contiguous portion, right, of the Dismal Swamp that's uh, extant. So I had to do some ARPA, get an ARPA permit, uh, go through that process to go in. Uh, and, of course, uh, the materials that I've recovered and all the field information is, is there their possession, their property, whatever you want to call it. So, um, so, but basically, uh, initially, I had to initially really kind of pave the way for this now over decade long uh, partnership that uh, me and the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service have. So, in any case, yeah. So this history is quite rich uh, as far as even the documents would sort of indicate or suggest. Um, and so, what we're really looking at is, as you said. Uh, any sort of uh, advanced uh, statement there about swamps. This swamp is uh, uh, one in one form or another. It's it's actually fairly recent in terms of its age. Uh, it, the mature swamp itself emerged somewhere around six thousand years ago, uh, and it started forming. Of course, the the very first sort of baby steps of swamp formation started right after the last glaciation uh, in the area. So that was more like uh, maybe nine ten thousand years ago that they really can detect the beginnings, very early beginnings of the swamp. But in any case, uh, yeah, so we have a mature swamp around 6,000 years ago, um, and basically the geography of, of the swamp is that its western edge is defined by what's called the Suffolk or Nansemond Scarp. And so this is a geological uh, formation, an escarpment, that stands about 15 to 20 feet above swamp level. And so that provides its natural sort of barrier uh, for eastward uh, expansion, or westward expansion, sorry. Um, right. And then heading east, it was basically, there's another smaller geological formation just set inside of the Atlantic Ocean there um, that sort of forms this eastern boundary and then... Uh, the water flows largely south, although some flows north, uh, one way or another, out of the swamp. So, uh, and it's in its mature form, mature state. Uh, it was about two thousand square miles in size, uh, so quite a big place. And uh, and that persisted in that size even up to maybe even the Civil War. It might have lost a few hundred acres, or I'm sorry, square miles by the Civil War, but it was still pretty pretty darn large uh, by the eve of the Civil War, anyway. So. So basically, for the historic period, starting in that region around, it depends on where you draw the line, 1580s to 1607 with the founding of Jamestown, um, that swamp was quite quite a vast part of that landscape, that uh, burgeoning colonial landscape. Um, so, but once once you start relying on documents, as we do with historical archaeology, what we find is that, well, most documenters, right, the colonials and so on, uh, they they recorded it as a swamp on maps and such, but they really didn't like swamps to speak of. Uh, they didn't go in there much. Uh, they didn't certainly, uh, you know, go in and record a lot of detail or even try to live out there much less. So there's quite a gap in the in the historical record, especially when we're talking about the 1600s and even much of the seven, uh, first half of the 1700s. Uh, people just weren't going in there that were documenting what they were doing and documenting the swamp. So there's quite a bit of mystery about who, if anyone, uh, might have gone in the swamp uh, uh, 
in those early, you know, the century right. and a half or so. Yeah, I, um, I would just want to ask you, uh, as you're setting the tone for all of this, um, mm-hmm. trying to get a sort of a picture of it uh, and back up just a hair around 6,000 sure. BP, um, which which you had mentioned, uh, which is a critical period in in, in landscape history in the uh, eastern United States, because that's when the rate of sea level rise actually started to slow, and and environments yeah. and landscapes sort of stabilized all over the uh, eastern U.S. and especially on the so- uh, coastal plain, and so you had sort of a natural landscape that uh, was sort of attractive to prehistoric peoples uh, during the Archaic. I was wondering, did you find any information on the archaic period uh, when you go, began doing some work? Was there a prehistoric site distribution history uh, for that particular uh, landform in the Great Dismal Swamp? What was the early prehistory uh, in the landscape like, or what can you, what kind of light would you shed on that? Sure. Well. Um Basically, that western uh, escarpment that I mentioned, the Nansman Scarp, uh, that is, you could look at it as one, one 30 or 40 mile long archaeological site in many ways. It is, right. it is absolutely packed with uh, sites, archaic as well as more recent periods, um, all the way up to, of course, the historic period. Uh, as far as um, there's distinctive artifacts associated with many eras of the pre contact. Epoch. Um, there is a distinctive, uh, somewhat well-known dismal swamp uh, uh, stone, uh, uh, bola stone, and uh, for example, um, but basically that whole scarp, unfortunately, has uh, not probably 100% of it, but I would think about 90% of it has seen the plow, right? So the intact sites and intact work at intact sites is very limited. Much of what we know from the SCARP is basically you know, surface collection, uh, mm-hmm. results of surface collection. Um, so, But what we don't know, uh, ultimately, archaeologists uh, thinking of archaeology here, is in terms of in the swamp itself, what kind of archaeology for any of the pre-contact eras uh, is out there. Uh, as of, and if, if Before I started work, let me put it that way, there wasn't much known, um, not to say none, but there wasn't much known because, because again, not much archaeological work had been done in, in the standing swamp and even really in uh, former swampland. Um, some at the edges, right, uh, especially when you talk about some like work in Norfolk or Virginia Beach, you know, usually cultural resource management kind of work. There's there's fines, but all of these, including the scarp, are sort of you know wrapped around what was once the, the swamp itself or the current swamp. So, right, um, right. yeah. So what? Uh, so you can basically imagine uh, at about six thousand, but even before that, um, the scarp was quite uh, quite a popular place for indigenous Americans. Um, some work suggests that there was a population decrease uh, in the er, is it early and middle woodland, I think it is, and then uh, right. and then we might see an increase coming back in the in the more late woodland period. But but ultimately, again, a lot of this is is sort of it's not as you know based as on strong and robust data uh, and work as we might hope. Um, just again because of the the plowed up nature and so on of the of the scarp and much of the other. Uh, surrounding landscape of the swamp. Um, now, inside the swamp, at several of our sites, uh, yes, we found, a de- not all, but at several of them, we found a, a decent representation of not only archaic period 
uh, peoples, but also more recent uh, various woodland uh, era uh, settlements and so on. Now that said, uh, being trained in historical archaeology, uh, you know that wasn't necessarily the, a deep focus of my work, uh, and this was not a what you call it a mitigation project. So uh, what I didn't end up doing was excavating everything I. Uh, or taking all my excavations down to culturally sterile soil. I, did, I didn't do right. much of that at all. You actually. just focused on the historic period. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, there was, yes, uh, for, certainly for my research design and questions and so on. Um, uh, we did uh, some of the early shovel tests. We went, we went uh, into greater depths uh, and got into, like I said, probably as deep as certainly the archaic. Um, one of the other things we did, uh, well, I, I can explain this in a minute, uh, when I give a little more detail about what we found out there. Um, so with the historic period, uh, one of the things that I sort of figured out uh, with the help of Elaine Nichols' MA thesis I mentioned earlier, plus the historical record, <coughs> was that if there were historic peoples living out in the swamp, um, Maroons or otherwise, any other group, uh, more, more than likely they were actively seeking out areas of dry ground, and this makes perfect sense, of course. Um, so the question was, what what, are we, what kinds of dry ground would we be looking for? And so most of the documentation ends up suggesting hills and hummocks, uh, which, again, we're talking a few references over a couple hundred years, right? Uh, but people living on hills and hummocks out in the deep recesses of the swamp or some such melodramatic phrasing. Um, so right. when I first went out there, uh, yeah, one of the key things I was looking for were these little hills and hummocks. When I think of a hill or a hummock, I don't think of anything too big a, too big a size, right? Um, so uh, eventually with basically starting the survey in the fall of 2003, uh, I had two directions I took. One was surveying along uh, pre-Civil War canals, which I'll explain that in a second here. Uh, but they're in there. They're in the current refuge. And then... Uh, surveying in parts that were remote compared to uh, those canals, right? The canals represented some intrusions of the modern world, but there was, the swamp was so big that there were vast areas and, and so on between any of those um, half dozen or so uh, pre-Civil War canals that were put in in the 1800s. Um, so think remote uh, landscape survey and then think canal adjacent survey is the main sort of MO for that first uh, season. And so uh, working away from the canals, I was delighted to find, with the help of some of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife people, um, that we weren't really just talking about hills and hummocks, and at least in the way I was thinking of them. It's actually islands that are out there. Um, and these islands are quite large uh, on the order of, uh, they can be anyway, between 20 and 40 acres uh, for the ones I've been working on most uh, most uh, directly and deliberately. Um, but we have others that are an acre, two acres, five acres in size as well. So, um, and the one thing about the swamp is the current extant swamp is that um, it really hasn't uh, it hasn't been disturbed all that much in, in the typical sense of the word in archaeology. And we'll, we'll have to throughout. hold that we'll have to hold that thought because we have to go to okay. break, and we will resume this fascinating discussion on the historic archaeology of the Great Dismal Swamp between uh, Southern Virginia and Northern North Carolina. After these words, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back. In a on a new episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's topic is a fascinating one, and we are talking about the archaeology of swamps, and in particular the Great Dismal Swamp, which is a national wildlife refuge in the eastern part of the in the along the eastern coast of the United States, specifically uh, straddling the border between Virginia to the north and North Carolina to the south. My guest is Dr. Dan Sayers, who have spent the last 13 years looking at the historic archaeology of this landscape. And Dan, we were talking during the break about the cultural and the physical geography of the Great Dismal Swamp and its appeal to certain segments of of the population post Euro-American contact post uh, the uh, prehistoric period during which Native Americans lived in that area, and we had talked about that in the first segment. But why don't you give us a little bit of a background on the Maroons, some of the people who lived there, and some of the earlier settlers and population groups that were drawn to the swamp for a variety of different resources. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um so basically, yeah, in the early uh, colonial period, uh, like I said, probably for most people, we'll, we'll be thinking 1607 and, and after. Uh, right. 
the uh, the we basically are looking at the colonial sort of usurpation of indigenous lands right in this region. Uh, Jamestown is some um, thirty five to forty miles uh, as the crow flies from the northwest corner of the swamp. Um, and then that just that whole area, as we we probably know, right, was was a very early focus for colonial expansion and settlement. So a lot of Native Americans or Indigenous Americans were finding themselves displaced from traditional lands in the early 1600s and, and after. Um, so I anticipated, uh, and I anticipate still, I guess, in a sense, right, that uh, it's an appreciable number. I don't have a specific number. No one recorded it. But an appreciable number of, of Native Americans uh, found in that swamp, right? It's probably had a long cultural significance in general to people in the region. They found that they, uh, they had reason now to go occupy and settle uh, uh, the various corners of the swamp. Uh, so there's just whispers and glimpses in the documentary record of this of this uh, people-based process of, of Native Americans coming in and colonial-rooted uh, process. Uh, but by 1660, 1680, uh, what we find is, uh, and most historians agree, right, that the uh, the sort of the cementation, uh, cementification of enslavement of African Americans or people of African descent really took hold there in that exact region. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the things we do know, and scholars have been looking across the hemisphere at, right, is this uh, population or subpopulation among enslaved Africans and people of African descent that we call Maroons. Now, Maroons were people who uh, basically uh, weren't going to take it anymore. Uh, And their particular way of not taking it anymore was removing themselves from the entire social world and economic world of enslavement. And they did this by typically by finding these pretty remote places, be they swamps or mountains or hill country or whatever, depending on wherever you're talking about in the hemisphere, finding these places that colonials and enslavers weren't going habitually or were very defensible, uh, and occupying them. And so the Dismal Swamp emerges. Again, I think I said earlier, right, it's about 2,000 square miles at this time in size. It emerges as basically a haven uh, for Maroons in this entire mid-Atlantic region, really, as far as we can tell. So in a sense, it's like a human refugium as well. Yeah. Yeah, I would say across you know many many uh, many groups, right? So Native Americans, at least not you know among Native Americans that were displaced by colonialism, some chose to go in the swamp, and then a little bit uh, down the road, right, with the enslavement of Africans, that uh, they started going in, and their descendants started going into the swamp permanently as right. maroons. Right. And then uh, you know it took about. Uh, I don't want to put this, I guess, about 160 years or so for colonials to finally get a little bit of interest in the Dismal Swamp and its resources um, and on a massive scale, in particular, right, to generate wealth and capital. So uh, this sort of began in the 1760s. Uh, George Washington is affiliated with it as well as uh, his brother-in-law. But this uh, initial company uh, called the Adventures to Drain the Great Dismal Swamp, they formed. Uh-huh. And their idea was uh, basically dig a con- uh, have a canal dug, and then we're going to lumber it, the swamp itself, bring the lumber out by way of the canal, make money off that, uh, one way or the other, the wood. They made various products like shingles and so on. And then uh-huh. uh, they would use that now treeless landscape either to uh, to make it arable, right, to sell off for farming, or they'd grow like rice or some other, something else uh, to make yet more money off it. 
<clears throat> so that was like this first effort, but it really kicked into gear uh, right around the turn of the century there, around 1800, uh, where uh, several canals uh, after that were put into the swamp. And the shift, uh, what happened really was kind of a shift uh, towards uh, the lumbering was still there. That was constant. But the canals end up being basically end up emerging as part a key part of that intracoastal waterway. Uh, mm-hmm. And the canals also end up being these sort of corridors of capital or wealth, right? Because the companies realized, oh, we can charge tolls to all the merchants. They can run their little boats through the canals and get their products from point A to B. Uh, Norfolk, uh, Virginia is usually part of that equation. Um, and, and avoid the ocean and, and heavy shipping costs and whatever else. So, um, but the, the point of all this is, of course, is those, those canals, uh, by the way, usually about 12 to 15 feet deep, some of them as wide as 50 feet, uh, uh, over 50 or 60 miles total of canals were excavated entirely by, or mostly, I should say, by enslaved African-American labor. So roughly 1763 to 1860, uh, but certainly 1800 or so up to the Civil War, this whole different population, in this case enslaved African-Americans, goes, uh, ends up becoming part of the swamp social world. They're forming communities out there, um, one way or the other. And, and we're, and were they, by and large, out of touch with uh, with the the white settlers uh, for at least I'm guessing you as you as we were talking about over 150 years that was just like a refugium so I would assume that for that early period of of uh, your American colonization they were pretty much left to their own devices how did how did that work that uh, before the canals yeah before the canals yeah yeah I think so I think basically you know the, uh, until something pops up, we're pretty sure that no one that went into the swamp, be it the Maroons or Native Americans, they weren't necessarily recording their life and so on in documents. Uh, and right. no one from the outside world was really habitually going in. Uh, uh-huh. And that's that's somewhat unusual, especially thinking of Maroons. Uh, quite a bit of what we know about historical Maroon settlements comes from the militia that were formed to go raid their communities and try to take them back. Uh, right. But that, that speaks in part, that history of, there's very little of that, uh, and that speaks in part to the, the nature of the swamp landscape itself. It's, it's really, it's very hard to get through. This is, not a, this is not the kind of swamp that you take a canoe in and row, you know, row around in, except for maybe the big lake in the middle of it. Uh, right. You don't have the fan boats that can go roaring through like you've seen in some of the Florida swamps. Right? It's very thick. There's a lot of undergrowth because it's an intermittent swamp. It, it doesn't just sit there. The water doesn't just sit there. So there's, there's a sort of sub-canopy floral regime that's extremely thick in most places, vines, etc. And then, of course, the trees themselves, um, very thick as well. So, yeah, you weren't just going in because, oh, what the heck, let's get a, guy, a group of guys together to go find some maroons. They, they really had to want to, and they had to also understand that, you know, if you go in there, uh, these folks are not afraid necessarily, obviously, they're, they're not afraid to go in, they're not afraid of you necessarily, they're, they're going to defend themselves, so you may not come out, right? It's a pretty hardy bunch that are going out to live in the swamp anyway, so, yeah, sure. so all this ultimately means is, that, yeah, the documentation of that pre-canal or pre-lumber era uh, is pretty thin. It doesn't mean there's none, but it's pretty thin, and a lot of it uh, that we do have comes from observations of what amounts to, in my mind, the sort of edges of the swamp. Um, people kind of peeking in, you know, uh, but not really going in and really recording stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then with the historic period, because capital's being invested, companies are forming, uh, all, all that kind of stuff, uh, 
profits being made. The, the documentary record of the swamp uh, increases quite dramatically. But even so then that, you get into like the that. canal period, and then what happens? Yeah, well, that's when the documents really, really arise uh, in terms of quantity and detail. Lots of company records, of course, maps, you name it. Um, but even that tends to focus on the canals uh, and life on the canals. Um, so a lot of the swamp, like I said, is still pretty interior and remote, even when the canals are in there. There's, you know, tens and hundreds of square miles between any given canal. Um, sure. And th- those parts of the landscape aren't being as recorded as much as might be expected. So what I've ended up finding then is, you know, like I said at the outset, that once this whole sort of 250 or so years of history really became clear to me that it wasn't just maroons, it wasn't just anything, it was a lot of different groups of people, a lot of different processes at play, um, you know, this is this is complex stuff and... and uh, and we were going to see a pretty interesting archaeological record if there was any truth to the documentary record. So, um, of course. Yeah, so I basically figured any one of these, anybody that fell into any one of those groups, or groups I have no idea about, <clears throat> they were, in fact, going to seek out high ground if it was or dry ground if it was out there. So, yeah, during that survey, like uh, I was mentioning earlier, we found essentially these, area, not hills and hummocks as much as these islands, and by some good fortune, a few of the islands happened to be in the in the path of these canals, uh, certain of the canals that went through. And so they were used by canal labor uh, co- company workers, right, for their settlements. So I've been able to look at settlements associated with those communities. <clears throat> and then, of course, we have several examples of these islands uh, that are well away from canals and, and were home to different kinds of communities. And these are the communities that are comprised mostly of Native Americans as well as Maroons, uh, uh, certainly after about 1660 or so. Uh, so it's just been a really interesting sort of project, and that sort of explains in part why we've been able to uh, maintain the enthusiasm and interest uh, for over a decade. There's so many different sites, different histories, different people. Um, what are, so, what are you finding, though, and I think a lot of people would be interested in this, you know, you said as, as time goes along, and this is obviously a logical situation, as time goes along, you get better documentation, and presumably you are also finding more information of an archaeological nature. So my question is, and a lot of people are very interested in this when when we're we're talking about historic archaeological themes, what is the coincidence between the archaeological and the documentary records, and what are we getting from the archaeology that we might not even get a glimpse of just by looking at historic documentation? Um, especially for this site, uh, this landscape. Uh, so the historical, let's, let's think of the two periods, uh, even if it's just sort of for convenience for the moment, right? So the pre-canal period, like I said, pretty limited documentation. And, uh, you know, it's like it's enough uh, information in those early documents to sort of make you go, wow, I really, really think this kind of history of Maroons and Native Americans happened in the swamp. But it's also of the sort that isn't, it's not enough, there's not enough detail in those records to say, oh, here's what the history, the social world of these people was then, we know this from this this source and that source. It's just these little glimpses. So even if you, you took all of it at face value that you have from the, say, 1607 to 1750 era, 1760 era, 
you wouldn't have any particularly robust image or understanding of the social world of this 2,000-square-mile swamp. Of course. Um, it's not entirely unlike, right, uh, an unexplored area of pre-contact history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what an archaeologist would face there. It's really, archaeology in this case for that period is really just telling us 99%, so to speak, of what we know. Uh, so just enough in the document that documentary record to compel one to go out and and sort of test the idea that people could have sustained themselves and communities out here. But there's nothing really about those communities and about the social world. So um, now that said, if you if you look at the documentation of that kind of that same era for other maroon sites or other Native American sites, and, and you can extrapolate a little bit about what might have gone on out there. But still, for the swamp, there isn't isn't as much of a documentary record as you would hope. So it seemed to me that if, if a place that I've ever looked at uh, called for uh, archaeological research because it was going to be central to our understanding, I would say the Dismal Swamp is right up there with the good examples. Um, after the, after the, or once the canal or the, the, the canal or lumber era begins, um, the documentation, like I said, certainly exponentially increases. Um, and it gives us a decent amount of information, uh, usually from outsider perspectives, though, of what these labor, uh, canal company labor communities uh, sort of look like on a day-to-day basis. They even give us some insight into what laborers, company workers, were saying about those maroons who lived in the deep recesses of the swamp still. So we get a, a little bit of glimpse of life throughout the swamp, certainly a fairly robust image uh, compared to earlier era. Of, of the canal companies, settlements, and workers, but still, uh, we didn't get. We don't have quite a quite as good an understanding as we might hope for. Right, what was going on uh, in the sort of day to day levels with these communities of enslaved workers? What was what was the economy like once the canal company goes in? Uh, the canal company, sorry, uh, and these workers are now part of that swamp social world. Um, yeah, you know, how did they how did they interact, right, with anyone else living in the swamp? Uh, we don't know as much about that as we might hope. Right. So the archaeology of those kinds of settlements, the sort of 1760 to 1860 sort of uh, canal related settlements, is also pretty important. Uh, but that's a little more like what most historical archaeologists see, which is you have a decent amount of documentation, and and then archaeology uh, in certain ways can help. Uh, bring insight, right, that the documents don't provide. But there is some overlap with information, of course. Um, hold, hold that thought because we have yep. to take another break and, and we'll come back and I think what we'd like to discuss to a large degree is what is the archaeology over there and, and what, what are you finding and what, what are the abundant finds, but we'll get back and discuss this very fascinating topic of the archaeology and this, specifically the historical archaeology of the Great Dismal Swamp on the uh, southern portion in the southern portion of uh, Virginia and the northern portion of North Carolina along the coastal plain right after these words. Please stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Adoption changes a family forever. For the adopters as well as the adoptees, there are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial, and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are talking to Dr. Dan Sayers here in this final segment of today's episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Our topic is the historic archaeology of the Great Dismal Swamp, which is one of the few remaining national wildlife refugia in the eastern United States. Uh, Dan, tell us a little bit about what you actually are finding. What are some of the common finds that you are uh, discovering over the course of the excavation, and what are some of the real nuggets that you've identified and discovered in your 13 years of of being involved in this project? Sure. Um, Well, uh, basically, uh, like I was saying earlier, uh, I've been focusing on these islands uh, throughout this uh, research project for the most part. Um, And I'll use one example because we at American University, since I've been there for the last several years, uh, we ran five field schools at this one site. Um, And it's just one of the best examples uh, of, of, of... one type of community. So one of the things I looked for were communities that had, from 1607 all the way to the Civil War, uh, communities that had stayed in uh, what amounts to remote or interior parts of the swamp. So it had to be something away from those canals, and in this case an island away from those canals uh, at appreciable distance, So uh, and away from the natural edges. So we had, like two, in other words, 250 years of... Potentially uninterrupted history, as it were, right? Uh, at one of these sites, and so one example we have is about twenty acres in size, and uh, it—it's uh, been, like I said, it's been the focus for the last uh, several AU field schools. And um, and long story short, uh, in general, right? It's it's uh, it's got a varied topography. It, it ranges from say about a foot above swamp level to about ten or eleven feet above swamp level. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a varied enough height difference that you have actually different trees growing at the higher elevation, right, than you find at the lower elevations. Um, 
And what we found is basically everywhere I stick a shovel in the ground out there, uh, there's evidence of historic, and I mean pre-Civil War historic, uh, use of that site. Um, it's, it's an amazingly complex uh, sort of uh, arrangement out there, right? Uh, one way or another in terms of archaeological signatures, features, and so on. But in a nutshell, across the island, that we've, the places we've looked, uh, there's been three very distinct areas we've looked at, including the highest point of the island. Uh, we're finding evidence of multiple uh, cabin structures, right? Fairly dense mm-hmm. concentration of these cabins, and all we see, it, everything's rotted away. There's no preservation that we found yet, but it's just your standard, in a sense, the dark stains of, of a cabin footprint. Um, but it's post and ground structures, typically raised off the ground, probably like is common in the region, a foot, foot and a half off the ground. Um, pretty, like I said, seemingly densely packed uh, in this landscape. Um, all these, uh, I think a total of 14 or 13 separate structures. Now, we haven't exposed all of them, but we've got segments of them. Then um, they span the ages of right around 1600 all the way up to the, uh, about the Civil War. Um, and then the material culture that's going along with that uh, is probably, the mo- in a way, among the most interesting parts of this. Um, as you might expect, right, the people, the Maroons and Hunat, who were jo- going out in the swamp and, and joining or forming these kinds of interior communities, they weren't racing back to the outside world every third week to get something. Uh-huh. In fact, they were, they were really trying to avoid as much as possible that outside world, and that meant all of its stuff, too. And so the kinds of things, the commodities, the former commodities that we typically find at historical archaeology sites as a defining characteristic, right? Uh, they're not absent, but they are, they are represented by a low percentage of the overall site assemblage. Uh, I want to say, depending on which part of the site you're looking at, between 95 and 98% of the artifacts we're finding are not uh, original to the outside world and its commodity market. Rather, what, they're, what they are using, rather than rely on the market, they're using ancient stone tools and ancient ceramics, as far as the stuff that is, you know, non-organics that we find. They're using these things in, their, uh, in the historic period. So they're essentially what I say in my, my new book, right? They're resuscitating this ancient material culture uh, right. and then repurposing it and reusing it, uh, right, on, in day-to-day life uh, so they can survive out there or continue and persist out there. So, so it's, it's, like it's, quite cura- it's like curating, really curating uh, the stone tools and basically making do with the resources that they actually have at their disposal so they don't have yeah. to go in and out all the time. Very interesting. Exactly. Recycling. And so the... Um one of the things is that we're seeing in several examples, right, is when they when they pull when they find an old projectile point, they're repurposing it, right? They're actually modifying yeah. it, and and then we find, of course, the the, the elements of the old type, the ancient three thousand or four thousand year old type, plus, of course, their modification more recently. Wow. Uh, but the majority of the artifacts that we have found uh, because of this, right, because they're reusing everything and they're kind of whittling things down as they, you know, find some way to use something. If we if we found 8,000 artifacts at this site, which is about correct for up to the, up to present, uh, the vast majority of them are smaller than, than your thumbnail. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Very tiny stuff uh, among those thousands of artifacts. Uh, you know, several hundred larger than your thumbnail artifacts, to be sure, but the majority is really, really small flakes and so on. 
Uh, we're also seeing at the same site, uh, after about 1800, it seems there's an increase in outside world materials. Uh, not dramatic, but probably about 3 to 5% uh, compared to the previous century and a half. Um, and so we're starting to see after 1790 or 1800 or so, the gun flint chips with the white clay tobacco pipe fragments increase, nails, right, machine cut nails, uh, mm-hmm. and, and glass, clear glass, and so on. But again, not in quantities at all typical for a historical site. Uh, And by way of contrast, excavations at one of the canal labor settlements uh, dating from about 1815 up to the Civil War, right, was much more typical. Uh, 90 90 or so percent of what we found was outside world stuff versus a few stone flakes and whatever mixed in for good measure. Um, So even those, you know, sort of canal-adjacent communities that that kept contact with the outside world, even in a swamp, right, they, they started... Their appearance is much more typical, even if the the quantity of stuff is not quite as great as you find at a uh, colonial plantation or farm or something. <laughs> so, but basically, yeah, it's it's the archaeology is pointing out not just uh, that people were present, and we can kind of verify what the documents seem to have been whispering and telling us. Uh, however incompletely, right? It's showing that yeah, uh, basically for 250 years or more. Um, Right, people were living at, uh, in these communities, and they were probably multi-generational communities because there's, it's, the, the record's pretty conservative across that 250 years. The, the architecture stays within about two different styles, right? Not much variation there. The same approach to material culture up until at least 1800. But with the 1800 mark, the canal companies are coming in, and it makes sense that more outside world stuff's going to trickle into these companies anyway, or these interior communities anyway. Um, still important, but still, but it makes sense given the history. So it's it's a pretty continuous uh, reproduction, right? Social reproduction of these communities, and they and they stay somewhat similar, at least as in terms of how they're represented archaeologically. So it's it's just kind of neat. Um, to, to sort of the documents, you couldn't swear by that fact. Certainly, from just reading the di- the primary documents alone. Uh, right. In fact, when I first started, most people were pretty skeptical that there were permanent communities out there. Uh, certainly, multi generational ones uh, were not. How big were not, these communities? Well, um, you know, fundamentally, I don't have a number. I didn't do that kind of archaeology yet uh, with that kind of that kind of methodology, but. Um, based on what I've found in, in my my recent book, I made basically another, actually both two places in another in a chapter I just got done writing. Um, we're probably talking at least at any given point between 200 and 400 people living right in any one of these communities. Um, uh-huh. It's like I said, the, the the landscape's pretty packed. 20 acres in a swamp is once you're walking on it after walking through swamp itself, it's a huge landform. <laughs> and uh, sure. And and it's and, and what makes matters more interesting is I'm just looking at one example, right? Uh, in terms of my the one I just talked about, there are dozens and dozens of of islands. Certainly, even in the current refuge, uh, if you look at the original 2,000 square mile swamp, I am certain there were, if not if not I'm sorry, if not tens of islands. There were certainly. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not speaking right. Uh, there were hundreds of islands, all right, in the original swamp itself that people could have lived on. So, right. um, yeah, it's it, the potential is staggering for dry ground for people to live on, and that doesn't even include scenarios where people built stilt structures over the swamp or or stuff like that. <laughs> so, um, in any case, yeah, I think you know fundamentally what this 
this research is at least beginning to show is that uh, there's many things that's beginning to show, but certainly what it's pointing towards is that if, if more work is done at a bunch of these different islands, we're going to find evidence of this swamp being pretty packed with people for the entire historic period. Um, and they're probably, most of them are probably Maroons, Native Americans, or the a little bit later, the canal company workers. And, and you'll probably find some significant, if not dramatic, changes in the settlement patterns and the geography of, of the human occupation with respect to changing industries, the changing growth and, and uh, diminution, if you will, of the canal industries and related industries, and probably a, a large mirror, if you will, of what the evolution of the historic archaeology of the region is all about. And it's kind of a nice little sort of self-sustaining landscape of, of human and natural events that that is sort of compressed in this kind of a very, very specific landscape, I suspect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah one, of the, yeah, one of the big changes that I certainly am confident in saying based on archaeology is that, yeah, right around 1860, 1863 even, uh, <laughs> these communities seem to have disbanded, right, these interior communities. Wow. Um, we have right. virtually no evidence from anything post-dating mid or mid nineteenth century, say eighteen fifty, eighteen sixty, um, until we start sure. talking about early twentieth century materials, right from lumber companies then or lumber groups then. But yeah, we have a, a basically at this point a void of at least fifty years between eighteen sixty and nineteen hundred or nineteen ten. Archaeologically speaking, found very very little, if any. You know, we haven't even we haven't even touched on what happened in the post Civil War period. If you in the few minutes remaining, what happened after the Civil War to this area? Obviously, it would have been uh, seriously impacted. Uh, by the results of the war, specifically because we are in Confederate territory, how did life ways and how did social structures uh, and how did the uh, possibly even industrialization, post-canal industrialization of this period affect the, uh, the human occupation? Right, well, very briefly, I, I think most, uh, most of the Maroons... Uh, probably left the swamp with a, the Emancipation Proclamation or even the beginning of the Civil War. Um, of course. I, I, I couldn't speak down to, of course, each individual, but certainly a social group the size of a community seems to have disbanded around that time. Uh, the company workers themselves, uh, I don't, I mean, they, those kinds of communities seem to have persisted uh, after the Civil War. We have even documentary evidence going into the early 1900s of, of company workers uh, uh, working for, you know, lumbering and so on. But the thing is, I think somewhere around the mid, mid-19th century, maybe 1865, 1870 even, uh, the companies changed their approach, and it looks to me that workers, rather than living in the swamp, suddenly started going in and out every day. Uh, so those communities, I don't think those settlements didn't last too much longer than, say, roughly the Civil War as well. Uh, right. Last but not least, right, that 2,000-square-mile swamp, as I said, is now about one-tenth of its original size. Well, most of that, that depreciation of its size happened after, uh, like I said, the Civil War. So uh, you see a major... Uh, dramatic change in the swamp geography or landscape itself, a lot of it falling uh, falling to the plow and so on. <clears throat> There's even settlements and towns that, that 
that were erected in former swampland now, right? Uh, and certainly right. houses and, and sort of suburban sprawl from Norfolk and Virginia Beach and so on uh, goes mm. into former swampland. So, yeah, it's it's roughly, again, I, I couldn't give you an exact date, nor does anyone probably want one, but it's roughly around the Civil War because of the war and just because of the general timing of of history and so on, uh, it, it, may, it just we have a, a dramatic transformation for the next fifty years that that not only shrinks, as it were, the swamp landscape, but it totally transforms uh, that social world that existed in that swamp for two hundred and fifty years. And how, uh, just very briefly, if you would, how have you been able to do the archaeology? Has it been pretty simple? I mean, do you set up a field camp out in the swamp and uh, use students to get involved on a seasonal basis as the excavations progress? Well, that's, yeah, that's been the, the, well, part of that's been the MO, the last half you, you mentioned, the students. That's been my main point of research with these field schools. Uh, it is a national wildlife refuge, so the rules forbid anyone staying overnight uh, in the swamp, uh, even for research purposes. So it's actually been quite quite dis- difficult logistically. Uh, we have to rent houses and so on around Suffolk, Virginia, or even further afield. Uh, we end up, and especially because it takes so uh, so long to get to some of these sites we've been working at, it ends up being an hour, sometimes even two hour commute um, to and from uh, the uh, the site to to the home base. Uh, so yeah, but after that, I mean, we still have to typically walk through a few thousand feet of water, and these are students who aren't used to this kind of work typically. So you know, it takes a little while for everyone to get their swamp legs, but we we haul out <laughs> what we need. It's <laughs> We haul out what we need. We don't usually have a lot of extra stuff because it's it's quite overwhelming uh, eventually, right? To be hauling so much stuff to and fro uh, across all this peat and muck and so on <clears throat> for a lot of the people, anyway. So, yeah, it's, it's 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 that kind of thing, like you'd expect. You know, we take what we need and uh, and you know that kind of thing on a daily basis. Yeah. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to conclude this very interesting discussion on the historic archaeology of the Great Dismal Swamp. Uh, Dan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for providing these insights and uh, informing our listenership on the complexities of doing swamp archaeology and the potential yield that we get from doing this type of work. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Joe. It's been fun. And until next week when we present another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, we're signing off, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, and have a good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.